Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys here, and I uh, hope you all had a nice Thanksgiving weekend. And if you're a guest with us, then thank you uh, for coming this morning and checking out our church. And like Dylan said, uh, myself and some of our other leaders, men's leaders and women's leaders, are going to be outside in the lobby after the service. And and I know some of you came when I was on sabbatical, and so I just have not gotten to meet everybody. But uh, if you're able to stay just for five or ten minutes after the service, I'd love to meet you, and you can connect with some of our leaders uh, after the service. And if you can't today, that's okay. We want to start doing this more regularly. Um, I also want to thank Chris Meyer uh, for preaching last Sunday. And uh, if you were blessed by his message, then please let him know that if you have not done that already. At Cedar Home, we believe that there is one God, and his name is the Lord. And he has always existed, and he will forever exist in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, who we call Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And God has revealed himself to us in many different ways. Uh, he's he's uh, revealed himself in his majesty and his, his plan for our salvation to us, and and. He's revealed himself to us most clearly in two ways. First, through Jesus, who is God the Son, who took on human flesh. And secondly, through the collection of writings that we call the Bible. <clears throat> a Christian friend of mine called me recently, and he said that a man asked him if he was one of those Christians who interpreted the Bible literally. In other words, that person was asking my friend if he truly believed that all those fantastical stories in the Bible, if they actually happened, stories like Adam and Eve and Noah and the ark and Jonah and the belly of the whale. And, and my friend was taken aback a bit uh, by that man's question, and so he brought the question to me. And I thought about it for a little bit, because there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. But then I told my friend, well, Jesus believed those stories were true. In fact, Jesus intentionally cited those ancient stories during his public ministry in order to reaffirm that they are true and that the whole Bible is completely true, even parts that may seem the most unbelievable to us. So, so I told my friend, if Jesus affirmed the truthfulness and trustworthiness of all of Scripture, then that's good enough for me. Because <laughs> ultimately, if you don't believe all the Scriptures are true, you're saying Jesus was wrong. If you don't believe the Bible is true, then you're saying that your understanding of the Bible is superior to Jesus' understanding of the Bible. And you can't be a follower of Jesus if you believe that you are superior to him. Now, obviously, the Bible includes writings that represent many different genres of literature, and we do our best to interpret Bible passages in light of their genres. But at the end of the day, I would rather be in the same camp as Jesus and have people tell me I'm a fool for affirming the truthfulness of all the Bible than to be in the other camp and have Jesus call me a fool. Amen. So here at Cedar Home, we believe that the Bible is unlike any other book ever written. We believe it was authored by God. In 1 Timothy 3.16, God says that he breathed out this Bible, the, the scriptures or the word of God. And God says that we should read it and memorize it and study it and put it in our hearts so that we can know him and so that we can learn why he put us on earth and what he wants with us and what he wants to do with our lives. 
And the core message of the entire Bible is called the gospel of God. The gospel is a word that means good news. The, the Bible is the good news that God loves us and that he offers to restore us to salvation and to friendship with himself because our sin has broken our relationship with him. It's offended him because he is a holy God. Our sin has broken off our relationship without him and without him, or with him, and without him we are under his wrath. So he says we're under his wrath because he's just. He's holy and just. And offending the perfect, holy, majestic, infinite God of the universe requires a punishment of his wrath. And God says that the way that we can be restored to him, the way that we can be rescued from his just wrath is, is not by earning this salvation, this rescue, and it's not by living decent and respectable lives which many of our neighbors believe, and maybe some of us in here believe. If I'm just a good enough person, surely God will let me in. I'm not as bad as other people. God says the only way we can receive friendship with him is not by trusting in ourselves, but by trusting in his work for us. Trusting in God the Son, Jesus' life and death and resurrection for us. As God in human flesh, Jesus lived a life different than any of us in this room and any of this, us on this planet. He lived a life perfect, without sin, without breaking God's law at all, so that he could be a perfect sacrifice who would suffer in our place God's eternal wrath toward our sin. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was murdered by humanity on a cross. But when he died, all of our sin that he took onto himself was put to death with him. Amen? And in his own death, Jesus killed that sin. He killed our real guilt, the guilt of everyone who's trusted in him. And and after three days dead in the ground, Jesus' spirit re-entered his body, just like he said it would. And his body came back to life. And he rose from the dead. And then for 40 days, he appeared to many people in his resurrected body. And many of those people's eyewitness accounts of seeing Jesus resurrected are preserved in the New Testament of the Bible, which we still have 2,000 years later. And after those 40 days, Jesus returned to heaven where he lives right now and where he rules and where he declares through his word, the Bible, that if you trust him, if you put your faith in him, then what happened to him happens to you. That your sins are removed. That your guilt before God is removed that your future condemnation in hell after this life because of your sin is removed. Jesus removes the curse. He removes this curse from you and he replaces the curse with his own righteousness, his own perfection that he earned during his perfect life on earth to give to you, to give to all who would trust in him. And so it is through faith in Jesus and only through faith in Jesus that any of us can be forgiven by Jesus and purified by Jesus 
and made to live with Jesus forever in glory. If you have not turned away from a life of godlessness and turned to God, then today is the day to do that. Turn to Jesus today and be saved. Romans 10.9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this wonderful news from God's word is called the gospel, the good news. It is the central message of all scripture, and God promises that this is true. His word is true. And so here at Cedar Home, we share this gospel message every Sunday as we read through God's Bible, his word, together. And every Sunday, we look in God's word to see how every passage points to our need for Jesus. And we look to see how Jesus has provided the salvation that we need in his grace and in his mercy. And we look in God's word to see how God promises to help us and to minister to us and to guide our steps as we try to obey him with our thoughts and with our actions and with our words. And as we read this Bible together, we celebrate that God loves us and that God forgives us. And, and we celebrate that we are saved and safe in Jesus Christ. Not because we are perfect, but because he was perfect and is perfect on our behalf. That's good news. Do you hear that? I don't know about you. I need somebody else's perfection to point to. Not me. I'm thankful he united me to him. That's what we need. And I say all of this to remind us why we preach, why we open God's word as a church family. We don't just do this because it's a tradition. We do this every Sunday because it's God's living word. And that's what we're going to do today. The part of the Bible that we're in today is, is a book called Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. And this book was written shortly after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven. It was written in the first century A.D. by a physician named Luke, a follower of Jesus who traveled with the apostles. And Luke wrote this book of Acts in order to write down how God continued to work in the lives of Jesus' followers after Jesus returned to heaven. And this has major implications for you and me if we're followers of Jesus. So if you brought a Bible today, then please turn to Acts chapter 2. And in a minute, I'm going to start by reading Acts 2, 1 to 13, so that we can get the context and then I'm going to keep reading through verse 21. And then today we're going to focus on verses 14 to 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We're, we'll put it on the screen at one time. But part of the reason I encourage people to bring a Bible is because um, I want you to see it with your own eyes. <laughs> I don't go with you seven days a week. The Word does, though. And you need to see it from God's Word. Before we read this, let's, uh, let's ask God to help us. Dear Jesus, uh, at your last supper, you prayed to God the Father that he would sanctify us by the truth. And you said that your word, God's word, the Bible, is the truth. So we ask that you would please use the truth of this word to sanctify us now, which means to make us holy, like you are holy. 
to see our brokenness without you, to see our sin and to repent from it as we turn away from, from that which can never give us peace and as we turn to you who promises us, a, promises us eternal peace. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would please move in this place with power as we read about how you worked in the New Testament. We want you to work that way here too, God. So we ask that you would supernaturally teach the hearts of all of us who are in here, those of us who believe in you and those of us who don't. Help us to see our need for you. Help us to grasp the depths of your love for us. Help us to see you as you really are, as glorious, as holy, as deserving of our worship, of our lives, our time, our energy, our, our money, everything that we are, everything we have, everything we do. And this Thanksgiving weekend, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for being our provider, our good shepherd. Thank you for everything you've done to love us and to save us and to provide for us and our greatest needs you've already provided for us. Thank you for laying down your life to save ours. Thank you for giving us your word to guide us. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to guide us and to comfort us. And we ask that you would protect us from evil, please, and that your name would be exalted here in this place. And we pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, Jesus, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'll read Acts 2, 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what is it? Men of Judah, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. 
For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons shall prophesy. the day comes the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. We're going to do this thing whether we have a mic or not so just listen up. <laughs> so when this large crowd, we got thousands of Jews here from all over the world, all over the known world. And when they heard the Christians, the small group of Christians, 120 Christians compared to the thousands of Jews, when they heard the Christians preaching the gospel to them in their native languages, it says they were astonished, they were bewildered. They could not deny that something supernatural was happening here. The Christians were sharing the gospel in languages that they had never even learned before. And so the Jewish crowd asks, what is the meaning of this? And some people said, ah, oh, they're just drunk. They're just filled with new wine. Now, everybody knows the eloquence of speech is not a side effect of getting drunk, okay? Especially eloquence of speech in languages that one has never learned. So Peter corrects these bystanders and he says, these Christians are not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning, which they called the third hour of the day. And verse 14 says that Peter lifted up his voice to this giant crowd of Jews, and he essentially says, men of Judea, and everybody who's living in Jerusalem right now, both of you permanent residents, and those of you who are staying here temporarily for the feast of the harvest, of the wheat harvest, I want you to listen closely to what I'm about to tell you, because what is happening here is an extremely important event in history. And then Peter goes on to quote the ancient prophet, Joel. Before we look at that, I want, I want to note a few things. First, remember who is talking here. This is Peter. When Jesus was arrested and put on trial, this is the same Peter who denied knowing Jesus just a few months earlier. He denied him three different times. When Jesus was in trouble, when Jesus was on trial, Peter did not speak up for Jesus. Peter did not address the crowd of Jews then, Peter cowered in fear, and, and Peter wasn't even at the foot of the cross to comfort Jesus when he died. So what in the world happened to Peter? What happened over those next few months that made him respond to this crowd so drastically different? Resurrection happened. Jesus came back from the dead. Jesus appeared to to Peter in his resurrection body. Jesus let Peter touch his scars to show that he really was alive. This was flesh and blood. This wasn't a ghost. Jesus ate meals with Peter and the apostles. Jesus talked with Peter. And Jesus forgave Peter for abandoning him. And Jesus 
then restored Peter, both as a man following Jesus and as the leader of the apostles. And now here, since Peter has seen with his own eyes that Jesus is the all-powerful God, that Jesus is still alive, that Jesus defeated death, Peter is not afraid of people anymore. Peter's not even afraid of death anymore. I mean, what was the worst? He's, this is, Peter and Paul are thinking the same thing here. We'll see this later. What was, what's the worst that other people could do to Peter? Make fun of him? Arrest him? Torture him? Well, if that happened, then he knew that Jesus would be right there with him and that the gospel would spread. And if people killed Peter for following Jesus, then Peter knew he would immediately be with Jesus in heavenly glory forever. So whether he lived or whether he died, Peter got Jesus. And when God changes our hearts and gives us faith, he gives us, that's the desire of our hearts, is to have Jesus. And so here in verse 14, Peter's, um, he, he boldly addresses this crowd because of his unshakable confidence that Jesus resurrected from the dead, that he is still alive. And as we see the way that Jesus' resurrection changed Peter's life, there are some important applications here for us too. First, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus back to heaven and his present reign over all things helps us to live on mission for Jesus without fear as we seek to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus' resurrection has brought new meaning to our lives. It means that my hope is not in the car I drive. My hope is not in the house I live in or the job I have or the clothes on my back. Those things are temporary and they're gonna, they're gonna let me down. They don't go with me after the grave, okay? And they're gonna let me down. I will be destroyed if I make them the foundation of my life. Instead, we build our lives upon Jesus and on the promises of his word which will never betray us. And living on mission without fear for Jesus also means this, that protection from the dangers of this world is not as important as following Jesus. If I believed that this life was all there is, that by all means I'm gonna do everything possible in my power to preserve my life by any means, to extend my life as long as possible, but the gospel of Jesus tells me that this life isn't even close to the entirety of my experience. In fact, these few years that I have on earth are the only time that you and I have. It's the only time we have in all of eternity to take risks in order to love others with the love of Jesus. This is it. This life is it. Because after this life, I'll be in heaven with Jesus. I won't have any more opportunities to tell non-believers about Jesus. I won't go on any more mission trips because I'll be with Jesus. Now is the time for Christians to take big risks to spread the hope of Jesus' gospel to all peoples of the earth. And we do that together as a church family. The other application I want to draw from verse 14 is that Peter is living proof that no matter what you've done in your past, Jesus will forgive you if you put your faith in him. And this, he doesn't only forgive you, he, he gives you a new life. 
makes you born again. He makes you a new creation. And he can redeem the rest of your life, the remainder of your life, so that you can use it to do great things for the kingdom of God. And this applies both to non-Christians who aren't living life for the glory of Jesus, and it also applies to Christians who want to live for the glory of Jesus, but who've fallen into sin, and sometimes serious sins. Sin is serious, but different sins have different consequences, right? As long as, as God gives you breath, it's never too late to turn away from your sin and to turn to Jesus in faith and to get real with him and confess your mistakes to him and then to receive grace, to receive assurance of forgiveness and to receive assurance of purification from your sin so that you can spend the rest of your life living life to the glory of God's name. So... What Satan doesn't want you to believe is this. He wants you to think you are a lost cause. That's not the message of Jesus. Jesus wants you to know you are not a lost cause. Don't think that you have done things that God is unwilling to forgive. You need his forgiveness. You need his redemption. You need him to redeem your life. And you need to experience his love and to live in the fullness of his love. And so turn to Jesus today. Let him redeem your life for the rest of your days for the glory of God's name. That's what you were meant to live for. So now as Peter addresses the crowd of the Jews in verse 14, it's, it's important to see that he is standing alongside uh, the other 11 apostles. And the 12 apostles are standing together in solidarity as a unified, visible witness to the Jews as God's true people. Just as God had established the 12 tribes of Israel many centuries earlier, so also God had established these 12 apostles to bring God's message of salvation not only to the Jews, but also to everybody who wasn't Jewish. And as the spearhead of this group, Peter continues to do what Jesus told him to do, which was what? I want you to start by being my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What's going on here? He's in Jerusalem. And so Peter now explains to this crowd how and why these 120 Christians are miraculously preaching to them in all of the Jews' native languages. And Peter begins by pointing the Jews to their own Bibles, their Hebrew Bibles, which they would have been very familiar with. And Peter cites from memory an ancient prophecy from the Hebrew Bible written by the Jewish prophet Joel, written 500-some years earlier. And in verses 16 to 18, Peter tells the Jews, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So in verse 16 here, Peter says this, what you are seeing the Christians do right now as they proclaim the wonders of God in your own language, this is the partial fulfillment of what Joel was 
writing about many centuries earlier. So for you and me today, let's, let's ask this. How exactly was this group of Jesus followers fulfilling that ancient prophecy of Joel's? Well, let's look at it one piece at a time. In verse 17, Joel writes that God declares that these things will happen in the last days. So we needed to define that term, last days. What do Joel and Peter mean by the term last days? This phrase is used five times in the New Testament of the Bible. And so let's look at, let's look at some of those. In, in Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the author of Hebrews said that long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, prophets like Joel. But then in verse 2 of Hebrews 1, it says, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. So if we, if we split history into time periods, then the time period known as the last days begins or began when God the Son Jesus first came to earth about 2,000 years ago by adding human flesh to himself and being born as a human baby, which we're celebrating this season as we head towards Christmas. And the last days will continue until the day when Jesus comes back to earth to judge the living and the dead. That future day is called sometimes the last day, singular, okay? So this means that all of us are living right now in the last days as we prayerfully anticipate the last day when Jesus will return. Get that? Last days, from his first coming to his second coming. Now, during these last days that we currently live in, the, the apostles had a lot to say. Uh, the Holy Spirit would tell them much about to describe this time period that we're living in. Uh, for instance, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. And Paul goes on to say in 2 Timothy 3, the, the, what's, what he would say right after this is that the way that we, fall, uh, that, that, we, that we don't fall into all of these sins is by saturating our lives with Scripture. Okay? With the truth of God's Word that transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit together as a church in community with one another that the Bible gives us wisdom, that it protects us, that it instructs us in the way God wants us to go. And about the last days, the Apostle James also wrote, he warned people, um, rich people specifically at that time, which 
in a worldwide spectrum would include most of us in this room. And James warned us not to trust in our riches or to greedily cling on to our riches. Instead, James says we're to be good stewards of the money that God has given us, that we should be thankful for God's provision, but we should not trust in our money, but in the Lord. And we should joyfully distribute our money on earth to see God's mission fulfilled among all peoples. We don't have money in heaven. We have money on earth. We take care of our needs, and we use the rest to take care of others. And after this speech to the Jews here in Jerusalem, Peter would later write about these, these last days. In a letter he would write called 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 2 to 10, it says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. With scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so the apostles described these last days, and they have more to say too. There will be a rise of false teachers. The apostles described these last days as a time when the evil desires and actions of humanity are going to increase. And they're going to be obvious to everybody on planet Earth. And you don't have to be a Christian to say our world is messed up. Read the news one, for five minutes. These last days are described as a time when rich Christians must steward their wealth wisely and intentionally and use their wealth in a way that shows the world that their hope is not in their money but in Jesus. And these last days are described as a time when Christians will be scoffed at for believing God's word and for holding to God's word. Other apostles warn us of false teachers who will try to lead us astray from God's word and who will warp scripture to say things it doesn't really say. And these are all the more reasons why we as Christians and as local churches must hold up, <laughs> we hold up the word of God as the truth and as God's revealed will for humanity. We're the pillar of the truth as the church. Now, the most encouraging part of living in the last days is the fact that we're living in a point in history when God is freely offering forgiveness and reconciliation and friendship to humanity. 
I read this thought by his pastor, Gordon Ketty. I love it. The last days are preeminently the era of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation, not judgment, is the leading motif. This is preeminently the age of salvation, the era of the outpouring of the love of God. So you guys, today, again, today is the day to be saved by the Lord. Today is the day to turn from our sin, put our faith in, in, in Jesus. Today is the day to get right with God by trusting in him and what he's done to make us right with him. So we've turned to Jesus today. And in addition to all these New Testament descriptions of the last day, Peter, in Acts 2 here, uses Joel's prophecy to describe the last days. And in verse 17, he says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And this is exactly what happened to the Christians here at Pentecost. And it's what would happen to everybody who would trust in Jesus. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to fill his church in an unprecedented way, with unprecedented power to live inside each and every follower of Jesus forever. And verse 17 says that the Holy Spirit wouldn't just fill the Jewish Christians, the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. God's spirit, God's salvation, God's good news, his gospel is not limited to one race or one nation. And God proves this by pouring himself in, into everyone who trusts in Jesus, whether they live in Stanwood, or whether they live in the deserts of Chad, whether they live in the jungles of Sri Lanka. The good news of Jesus is for all the peoples. And God confirms this truth by the Holy Spirit's filling of Christians from all people groups. We have brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe. And still more people groups that need to hear about Jesus. And Joel says that in the last days, when God has poured his spirit out, he says, your sons, <clears throat> excuse me, God says your sons and daughters will prophesy. And that's exactly what happened here at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came down from heaven, filled those 120 Christians, and they all began to prophesy to the Jews around them, supernaturally declaring the wonders of God in their native languages. And Joel says that in the last days, young men shall see visions and old men shall dream dreams. And, and we're about to see that happen right here in Acts when the Lord appears to Ananias in a vision and tells him to heal this Christian killer named Saul from his blindness. And we're gonna soon read about other visions and dreams that these Christians had, people like Cornelius and Peter and Paul. And describing the last days, Joel says in Acts 2 verse 18 here, that even the male and female servants will receive the Holy Spirit and they shall prophesy. So not only is the gospel of Jesus for all tribes and nations of the earth, but also it is for people of all social classes, rich and poor, old and young, clergy and lay people. And all of these Christians will prophesy. That doesn't mean that everybody has the gift of prophecy. But because the Holy Spirit has come out of the temple into the bodies of Christians, that means we all have the indwelling of God who trusts in Jesus, and we all have a gospel message to proclaim. You guys, much of the book of Acts is the story of lay people growing the kingdom of God and spreading the gospel. These were not full-time paid pastors. These were tent makers 
and fishermen and seamstresses and moms and dads and slaves and soldiers. And they testified to the world with the words of their mouth and with their love and with the holiness of their lives that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is Lord and Savior of all who call on his name. Tony Merida writes, Pentecost means that every believer can know God truly and must make him known faithfully. And R.C. Sproul writes, there is no such thing as a Christian who has not been anointed by the Holy Spirit for ministry. My dream is to see a laity empowered by God, one that is not satisfied with hiring professionals to do the work of ministry, but will come when their neighbor is in need and pray as priests for their friends. Isn't that great? And he's exactly right. Peter says that you, you church, are a royal priesthood whom God has called and equipped to love him together and to love one another and to share his love with a lost and broken world. And I'm so encouraged when I see that happening in our own church family. I love hearing about you visiting one another in the hospital and writing encouraging notes to one another. And I love hearing about you married couples helping other married couples with marriage issues and, and you community groups praying together and serving together and, and you youth leaders doing the best you can with the resources you have to lead 50 teenagers closer to Jesus every Thursday night. And I know you feel like we need a, 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 we need a full-time youth pastor right now and it's hard. And I wish we had the money to do that. We don't right now but you're doing the best you can. Thank you for making a difference in the lives of those teenagers. Hopefully God, it's, it, we'll keep praying. Hopefully we can have that person. Thank you, Eric, for leading the troops right now there. Thank you for everybody helping with, with so faithfully in children's ministry, 40 or 50 volunteers and, 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 and uh, the nursery and mops. What a great outreach to our community. And what a night you guys put on. Halloween night, 50 to 60 of you hosted 600 people here at this church from our community. That's incredible. Man, and I'm pumped about the, the dessert theater we're gonna do. Let's do it again. Let's show our neighbors that Jesus is real and we love him. God's people, his church, is God's primary game plan for shining the truth of God and showing the love of God to the world around us. So thank you for being part of it. And may God bless you for what you're doing here. And the last part of Joel's prophecy here in Acts, God says in, in verses 19 to 20, and I will show wonders in the heavens above in signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So here God describes the wonders he will do in the heavens and the signs he will do on earth before that last day, before he returns. Some Christians believe these things have already been fulfilled. Other Christians believe some of these things have been fulfilled. Other Christians believe all of these things have yet to be fulfilled. And I encourage you to read through passages like Matthew 24 where Jesus described some of these signs that would happen before the last day. However, as we interpret these events, 
we've got to remember not to get hung up on the signs themselves. What is the purpose of a, a sign, an arrow? Don't get hung up on the arrow. Get hung up on what the arrow is pointing to. That's, what, that's the whole purpose. Don't get hung up on the sign, but focus on the fact that it's saying that Jesus is God and he's coming back. And there's going to be clear signs that anticipate his return, that happen, okay? And so what that means today, again, for our loved ones, we pray who don't know, for them who don't know Jesus. Today is the day of mercy. Today is the day to come under the forgiveness of Jesus. And Christians, today is the day to joyfully live for Jesus by seeking to obey his word and by resting in his finished gospel work for us because we don't do it perfectly. Joel describes the future day of Jesus' return as the great and magnificent day. It will be an awesome, awesome. Our jaws are going to drop. Our knees are going to tremble. I don't even know if we'll be standing. It will be a day of awesomeness as Jesus returns in the clouds just as he left in the clouds. (coughs) It will be a day of weeping and terror, we read, for all who have rejected Jesus. But it will be a magnificent day of joy for all who have trusted in Jesus for salvation. And Joel's prophecy concludes here in verse 21 with, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We are living in the last days. And the last day of our planet is approaching quickly. When Jesus came to earth the first time, he came as a humble baby. But when he comes back the second time, he's going to come as a conquering king surrounded by the heavenly host. Do not take for granted the opportunity you have this day as God gives you breath right now to turn to Jesus and to be saved by him. Jesus promises that everyone who calls upon his name in faith will be saved. So let's be saved by God. And let's pray now as we prepare to worship him through a closing song. Dear Lord, we, we, uh, we read these great things and we're humbled. You are great and magnificent, worthy of our praise. You are holy, the holy of holies. And we thank you, God, for being gracious and mercy, merciful to us. That you are not required or obligated to Extend your grace and mercy to us to save us. But because of your great love for us, you have. Because of your great love for us, you've laid down your life, your only son's life, Jesus, on the cross for us, to suffer for us so that we might not suffer forever. May we celebrate that today. May we thank you and worship you, Jesus, Father and Holy Spirit, for doing for us, obviously, what we could never do for ourselves and for taking care of our greatest problem, our greatest problem of sin, which has broken our fellowship with you and put us under your wrath. But in your name, God, there is salvation. We pray for our loved ones and our neighbors who don't know you. We pray, God, that you would work in their hearts and lives. We pray that you would use us not to take this day for granted, but to pray for our neighbors, to call them, to reach out to them, to love them, to Think of ways we could serve them and help them and just point them to you.
You're an awesome God. Thank you that this is the day of salvation and that we can turn to you and trust you and know that we are safe in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.